can go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, let me add my welcome this morning. My name's Alistair. I'm the lead pastor here at St. Pete's, and I'm really grateful to be here with you this morning. Um, Stanley Hauerwas says his work as a theologian is similar to that of a bricklayer, and he would know. His father was a bricklayer, and he was raised in the trade. And so Hauerwas says this, My father was a better bricklayer than I am a theologian. I'm still in too much of a hurry. But if the work I've done in theology is of any use, it's because of what I've learned on the job. That is, you can only lay one brick at a time. Today is Lent, and therefore a good time to start a new series that we're calling Brick and Mortar. And it is going to take place in two parts over the course of the year. So for the next 16 weeks, all the way to Trinity Sunday, we're going to explore themes related to the gospel and the church. Eight weeks on the gospel, eight weeks on the church. And then in the fall, we'll pick this series back up and spend eight weeks exploring themes related to the mission of God. But at the heart of this series is the idea of bricklaying. We can only lay one brick at a time. And the pandemic, it's changed our world, it's changed our church, and we're not who we used to be, and there's no going back. So what does it look like to take steps together toward our future? And so brick by brick, I want to get back to the basics. I want to return to our foundation in Christ. And of course, this foundation is already laid for us, but over the course of the year, I want to lay one brick at a time so that we can rediscover who we are as a church and why we exist, as well as the audacity to step forward in faith into the future that Jesus has for us. And so today, we're going to lay the first brick, but not every building project is from scratch. Not every new beginning is new exactly. Sometimes it's a rebuilding. Sometimes we have to clean up the rubble and start all over again. And so the first brick in this series is about what building feels like, what building feels like, the emotions it stirs in us. Because the pandemic, it requires that we rebuild as a church, and we're all going to have different feelings about this. Now, the passage we just read in Ezra 3, first off, uh, back in January, first Sunday of the year, Rob preached for us, you might recall, out of Luke. Rob suggested that he preach Ezra 3, and I said, that's a great idea. I'll take that for the AVM. Thank you very much, Rob. But thank you. So Ezra 3 is about Israel rebuilding the temple after their time in exile. It's a new beginning that isn't exactly new. It's a restoration project. And once the foundation of the temple is laid and established, it stirs a very different reaction among several people. And so I have three points I want to explore this morning. Here they are. A brief history of the temple, the stories we tell, and our parallel universe. So history, stories, and getting out there. First point, a brief history of the temple. In Ezra 3, we read about leaders and priests and workers, and they all come together to rebuild the temple. And so we're told in verses 10 through 11, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Ashaph with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively. Oh, liturgy is in scripture. Go figure. They sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. 
Now, we can't understand this, this moment and all the reactions that it's going to evoke if we don't understand the significance of the temple to Israel. The temple, it began as a dream deferred. So we have to go all the way back to the 10th century BC, and King David had a vision. He had a dream of building a house for the Lord, and we can read all about it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But God says to David, would you build me a house to dwell in? We should hear some divine amusement here. God saying, would you, a human, in my creation, build me, God, a house to dwell in? God even retorts, I have never said, why have you not built me a house of cedar? But even so, God promised David that his heir, Solomon, would in fact build him a temple. And so David accepted that this vision, this dream, this thing on his heart was a dream deferred. But that didn't stop David from gathering all the resources he could within his life to adequately prepare Solomon for this building project. And in due time, the dream does come to fruition. In 1 Kings 6, we're told about Solomon and Israel beginning the construction of the temple. We have a full chapter, 38 verses, a thousand plus words about all the details, all the intricacies. It's thorough. If you've ever done a Bible reading plan, this is the one where you're like, I don't know how this moves my heart to the Lord, but I'm glad it's in the Bible. Like clearly whoever wrote this part of Kings was a bricklayer. They cared about the details. The best of the best of the best of materials were used to build the house for the Lord. No expense spared. It took seven years, and the end result was amazing. Then in 1 Kings 8, we're given an account of the entire nation of Israel gathering for the inauguration of their temple. And so we read in verse 11 of 1 Kings 8, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. If you know scriptures, you know this is a throwback to Exodus, that God would lead his people during the day in a cloud. So the presence of the Lord, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So God tangibly filled the temple with his glory at its inauguration. Can you imagine? Even so, Solomon prays this. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. May your eyes be open night and day towards this house, the place of which you've said, my name shall be there. So the temple was a dream realized. It was a place where heaven intersects with earth, a place graced by the presence and glory of God, a place marked by the promise that God would establish his everlasting kingdom through Israel. Which is why it is so shocking to read throughout the book of Kings about how the temple fell into disrepair and suffered from neglect. Sure, Joash attempted a restoration project, but it was short-lived. And so the temple offered, you know, ultimately it suffered at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. He ransacked the temple and its treasures in 604, and then again in uh, 597 BC, and then totally destroyed the temple in 587 and 586 BC. So the dream that had become reality became history. The temple of God, the house of God, destroyed. And the remnant of survivors in Israel were humiliated and deported to Babylon as exiles. 
And Psalm 137 is an exile lament. And the psalmist prays things like this. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. And then in sheer anguish, like in despair, in anger, the psalmist even prays, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you've done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This is a deeply discomforting psalm for us. But it reveals how far removed we are from the experience of exile and how far removed we are from the experience of the present-day anguish of refugees. Anything can be said to God in prayer. Anything, no matter how discomforting. It doesn't mean God's going to answer it. But this psalm reveals how traumatizing it was for Israelites to witness the ransacking of their land and be deported into a foreign land, knowing that the temple, the place where God dwelt with them, was destroyed. Even though this was a uh, a consequence of their unrelenting faithlessness, it was still traumatizing to behold. And so the people of Israel, they spend 70 years in Babylon, grieving, but also being called to seek the welfare of the city, to learn what it means to exist there. And then Persia comes to dominate Babylon, and King Cyrus, he sends these exiled Jews back to Jerusalem. And he even exhorted them, rebuild your temple. And this brings us to our passage in Ezra. The dream deferred, the dream that came true, the dream that became history is now the dream restored. And the foundation of the temple is laid. And the Hebrew word for foundation, just to make it clear, it's not just the first brick or even just the the, the core foundation. It's really the whole structure. And at the sight of this, the Israelites cry out, become Anglicans for a moment in liturgy. God is good for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. But different emotions are stirred as well. So with that brief history of the temple in mind, let's move to our second point, the stories we tell. So Ezra tells us about two very different responses to the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, Go back to Ezra chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of his temple being laid, though many shouted for joy. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound of the people's weeping, and they could not be distinguished from one another. Shouts of joy alongside cries of grief. How do we make sense of this? I remember the day very vividly, actually, that my grandfather died. My my dad's dad died before I was born, but my mom's dad died when I was just seven years old. And my dad brought my sister and I into the living room, and he sat us down, and he told us the news, and my sister immediately started to weep, like uncontrollably. And so I waited what I felt like was an appropriate amount of time, and then I said, can I go to my room? 
And my dad said, sure. And so I went to my room because in private, I wanted to keep playing Lego. And so I played with Lego. Now, how do you make sense of those two different reactions? One seems emotionally healthy. The other, emotionally questionable at best. And honestly, I'm working through this story this week, remembering this. And like, I'm just editing, like, kind of like trying to get my sermon done. Like, oh, this will help illustrate the point. And I just started crying for my grandfather because I realized I hadn't cried yet. 33 years. Tells you a lot about emotions in my household. But how do you make sense of these different emotional reactions? Now, one, yeah, sounds emotionally healthy. The other, unhealthy. But there's probably some truth to that. But there's something else going on, too. We were telling different stories about the loss. See, my sister's older than me. And so she had a better sense about what this loss meant. She knew this was no ordinary goodbye. But for me... I didn't understand it. It was my first exposure to death, and it didn't sink in right away. And so my, my story, it couldn't make sense of it. There was no category for it. It didn't fit. And so our ability to make sense of a situation, or the stories we tell about a situation, shape our emotions. They shape our emotions. Did you notice in our passage, it's the older generation that feels grief and sorrow. Theologian Robert Roberts, real name, (laughs) writes this. With vivid pain, they saw what they had lost. They remembered the glory of the old temple, its cruel destruction in the 70 years of exile. For them, at least for this moment, the rebuilding of the beloved temple signaled the dark evil that had befallen them. And in the same way, it's the younger generation that rejoices and And once again, uh, Roberts writes this. By their pleasure, the joyful group saw the coming fulfillment of their fondest hopes and the wonderful goodness of the prospect to worship God in his holiest place. So each group saw something different because each group was telling a different story about the event. And what they saw and the stories they told shaped their emotions. And when you keep their experiences in context, you can't say one response is more right than the other. Both responses make good sense and are healthy reactions. You see, the Bible is never afraid to keep weeping and rejoicing side by side and even together, and neither should we. And yet it also invites us to be aware of the impact of the stories that we tell. You see, one generation was telling a story of renewal and new possibilities. Another generation was telling a story of history and what was lost. And neither are wrong. And neither are the full picture either. You see, together, they tell a fuller story of the experience. Both stories and both responses are needed to grasp the full implications of the moment, what it meant to rebuild this temple for the Lord. So let's move on to our last point then, our parallel universe. The scholar Walter Brueggemann reminds us that when we come across experiences in Scripture, we should be careful about fully claiming them. Rather, they can come beside us and illuminate something of our own experience. So we can't say, oh, we get the grief and the joy of Israel in this passage. It's their grief. It's their joy. It's their experience. But it can come 
alongside us and illuminate how we might be feeling as we face all these changes together. Because we live in a changed world. The pandemic has changed our world. It's changed our lives. It's changed our church. We are not the church we were before the pandemic. And although we have fared well through the pandemic, there's fewer of us. And there's fewer resources. Now, we remain healthy as a church, even though we've changed, but these changes necessitate more changes. For example, we now meet downtown, but no longer in East Vancouver. And this past Friday, we shared letters with you about upcoming changes to our pastoral team, which Dan Danny, thank you for summarizing that in the announcements. Changes that we'll discuss in more detail after the service at our vestry meeting. And when you look around the room, I'm sure if you've been here a while, you see some familiar faces. But I'm sure you're also aware of people who are once here and no longer here. Whether they moved away or passed away or changed churches or even left faith. And these sort of changes always happen in the life of any church. But after a long season of not gathering in person together, taking it all in, for me, it was a lot. How about you? And yet, it's also incredibly good to be together, isn't it? It's a relief to worship together in the same space and not just a virtual space. It's a joy to host people in our homes for a group instead of on Zoom and there's a sense of hope that even though we've changed, God is not done with us yet. Our story isn't finished because he's the author of it. And yet, we're not through the pandemic either, are we? Things aren't totally normal. I don't recall it being normal for us to cover three quarters of our face while I preach. If this is a reaction to something, please let me know. We're still wearing masks. We still don't get to have a common cup and common loaf. Instead, we have those weird little space cups that none of us really know how to open and fumble with. And while we're mostly back in person, there's actually a good chunk of our community still meeting with us online. And so when it comes to our church and all these changes, how are you feeling? Do you feel sadness and, and sorrow and grief? Or do you feel relief and joy, maybe even hope. And whatever you may be feeling, I want you to know it's welcome here. We want to hold space for what you're feeling, and we'll do that at our vestry meeting. But this morning, what I want to ask is, what is the story you're telling? What's the story you're telling? Let's just consider a few. One story might be this. This isn't the same. And if you've called St. Pete's home for a longer season, there's a good chance this is the story you're telling. This isn't the same. Or maybe this is it. This wasn't the plan. You know, if you were a part of our adoption merger with Emmanuel Church, which happened just before the pandemic, whether you came from Emmanuel to join us or whether you were really invested in going to East Vancouver, there's a good chance this is the story you're telling. This wasn't the plan. Or... Things are falling apart. You can look at all the change and find it unnerving, and I can understand why, if that's the story you're telling. Things are falling apart. 
And any of these stories and more, they're going to stir our sorrow and our grief and our sadness. But what other stories might be told? This is still our home. If you've called St. Pete's home for a while, perhaps you're accustomed to change. You might not like it, but you know over the years we've changed. And the change doesn't change one thing. This place is home. I've heard people tell me stories that this is a beautiful place. I've been surprised by how many new people I've met who've, who've joined either during the pandemic or after uh, we started meeting in person again. And I'm just encouraged by your fresh eyes, the beauty you see in this place. Or a story that things are coming together. And maybe you look around and you think, yeah, everything's not what it was, but it's coming back together and there's hope on the horizon. And stories like these, they're going to stir our relief and our joy and our hope. And so let me ask, what's the story you're telling? Of course, there's way more stories than the few I've just shared. But I hope you hear me. We need your story. We need your experience. We need your perspective. There's room for how you feel. There is not one right way to feel through all this change. And perhaps you're wondering, what's the story you're telling, Alistair? What's, what's my story of this? Well, since coming back to sabbatical, or from, back to, I, that, there you go. That's everything you need to know from that Freudian slip, right? Already waiting for the next sabbatical. Since coming back from sabbatical, you know, my experience has been quite mixed, really. There's been so much joy in returning, for sure. Like, almost every Sunday, our daughters would ask Julia and I, like, when are we going back to St. Peter's? Like, like, they just wanted to be at this church. And honestly, like, even if I wasn't on staff here, like, this is the church our family would want to worship at. And so there's been joy in just worshiping with you again. And it's been great, like, to slowly connect with so many of you, and I'm trying my best to connect with people, just to hear how God has been at work, to get back to preaching in person and not just to a camera. So much joy. Leading our community toward Christ the best I can. I'm loving it. It's been hard. It's been hard to see how much we've changed. It's hard to take stock of the people who've left. And if I'm honest, like, I'm still in a season of grief over the death of Don Lewis. Like, it still just takes a hold of me sometimes. And the upcoming changes to our pastoral team, they're not any easier for me than they are for you. And if anything, that was almost the first thing I had to start working on when I returned from my sabbatical. So there's been a lot of joy, but it's been hard. And so I have all the feels, as Chandler Davis or Barch says. <laughs> Sorrow and grief and joy and hope, it's all there. So what's the story I'm telling? This isn't the same, but this is still our home. This wasn't the plan, but this is a beautiful place. Things feel like they're falling apart, but they're also coming together. It's not always as simple as one story, is it? Now, hear me. I don't want to project my story onto you. I want there to be room for your story amidst all this change. I want to make space for our stories, and we'll do that this afternoon. But in making space, all of us need to remember this. The story that we tell ourselves is not the whole story. 
It's our vantage point. It's our perspective. It, it matters. But we need others' stories too so that we can hear the full story of the moment. And sometimes we need to hear other stories to help us see that perhaps our story is not the full truth. So just as there was room for grief and joy over the temple in Ezra, there's room for grief and joy in this room as we rebuild through the pandemic. But there's also an invitation into a shared story. The prophet Zechariah spoke in the same context of Ezra. And he is well aware that there were these mixed reactions to the restoration of the temple. There were mixed reactions to this return to their land. And Zechariah said this to the people of Israel about the temple. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. And so no matter what story we're telling, we're invited to also tell a story of hope. Because God is not done writing his story of redemption in the world and even though things are smaller around here, we still have good reason to hope that the Lord has set joy before us. Even if we despise all of these changes, like not Preston for leaving, but like for leaving. <laughs> there's going to be so many, just, there's going to be so many Preston jokes between now and March 15th. Just so you know, it's going to be relentless. Uh, March, May. May 15th. <laughs> so many jokes in five days. I should, this is why I manuscript. Just in case you ever wonder. This is why I write every single word down. You see, even if we despise these changes, God in his goodness, he's going to give us reasons to rejoice. But here's the thing. It's not going to be because God grows St. Peter's fireside according to all our hopes and dreams. I mean, I hope he does. But that's not going to be the reason why we rejoice out of these small beginnings. We are going to rejoice because God in his goodness is not done with this broken world. That he is still at work in this place, redeeming and restoring lives. We're going to rejoice because there is always more goodness in God to discover. So this year, we're going to spend some work bricklaying. Because we do need to rebuild through this pandemic. As a church... We're going to return to the basics. We're going to go back to our foundations. Because brick by brick, we're going to talk about the things that do not change. The gospel, the church, and the mission of God. And in doing this, I want to take to heart the perspective of Stanley Hauerwas, the brick-laying theologian. We're going to be prone to being in too much of a hurry. But the truth is we can only lay one brick at a time. And so the work of relaying our foundation, rebuilding our church, it's going to be slow. But this morning, here's what I really want you to take away. Your story, your perspective, your emotions, how you're processing all this change, it's welcome here. There is no demand for a uniform response. Together, our experiences through this are going to help us see the full picture. Ezra writes in verse 13, people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. 
There's a kind of unity in this, isn't there? There's permission for different experiences and feelings. But together, there's one indistinguishable sound, a sound that was heard far away. So may we, in the many sounds we make, also make one sound together through this change. May our sound be heard from far away that God in his goodness is with us, even as things keep changing around us. Let's pray.